0: Okay, welcome to the Bill Cartwright Show. Our special guest today is NBA champion. I think you're four-time NBA champion, two-playing, two-coaching, three-time, okay. three-time NBA three-point champ, Craig Hodges. Craig, uh, so thrilled to have you here. Uh, mm. You know that... Uh, you know, what I feel about you. Uh, we had a great time together and uh, I, I, I think you're just a special, special person.
1: Um, Appreciate be Happy, happy to teach. have you here. Uh, no doubt, man. And just thanking God for getting another day to be able to come across the airways and, uh, you know, share with you, brother. All, anytime, you know, whenever we see each other, it's like going back to day one, man. You know, we got together in Chicago, knowing that, you know, the experience that we had and the young guys that we had to try to keep it in tow a lot of times. <laughs> it was it was big fun, man. So anytime you ask for anything, brother, I'm there, man.
0: Awesome. Awesome. I think that, uh, you know, but I'd like to share this it and it's always interesting to know people and where they come from. Uh, just tell us a little bit about where you grew up uh, right. and uh, you know, I, I was very, I'm very suspicious that you were a sports kid growing up, but but tell me about that, oh, where you grew up.
1: It's, it's, it's crazy because, uh, you know, once again, you you never know, they say you get a chance in, in spirit to pick your parents, but for me to, to have my spirit come down in the Hodges household and have my granddad, who was the, you know, he was the park director, you know, during the 50s and early 60s, and he taught a lot of young men how to play sports, and, a lot of them took that sports on to another level, and for me to sit there and watch it and be the first one in the gym when he turned the lights on, and I get run off the court by my uncles once to, you know, they came <laughs> on and started playing. So it was it was something that was fostered in me early as far as uh, being able to understand the impact of what sports could do for you. And when I was six years old, you know how the summers are in Chicago, 80, 85 with 70 degrees, 70 percent humidity. And that kind of stuff. So at, at six years old, he gave me a catcher. He gave me all the catcher's gear and told me, "He's like, boy, the quickest way to the big show is to be a catcher." And from sixteen to fourteen, I caught every summer, man, and I couldn't wait wow. to go hoop in, in the in the fall, you know. So, but you know, baseball is one of the things that it was it was part of my family DNA, you know, because at that point in time, my granddad was the uh, he was the first black track captain at the high school, Bloom High School, in 1928. And you know, my family had a sports history there, and I thought I was going to get a chance to play there, but I had to go to Rich East High School. And Steve Fisher, who you know, legendary in the fast wow. five and San Diego yeah. State, that was my high school coach. So I've had I've had great coaching since I picked up a basketball with my uncle. Whether it was my uncles teaching me how to actually play the game, or my uncle uh, Bruce, Lord rest his soul, he was. Uh, junior college scoring champ in 1963, so I was I was taught from an early age how to play the game properly, and how to how to understand the impact of what you could do off the court because, at at the household and you know around the the family dinner table, would be discussions about Ali, Jim Brown, Kurt Flood, you know, and I wore I wore number 14 because of Larry Doby. Oh, I did not know that. So, yeah. so anchoring those
0: conversations, was that um, your mom, grandparents, who was who was
1: leading yeah, those discussions? And, that, and, that was, and that's the cool part about it, man, that, it, you know, you talk about the balance, the balance of having uh, my uncles who taught me sport. But for the most part, it was my aunts and my grandmom and my sister and my mom who made sure that it wasn't even a doubt what was more important (laughs) you know what I'm saying that you're not going to get to play none of that if you ain't coming in there with A and we ain't talking about no couple of A's and and three or four C's we're talking about you got to be an honor student and and that's the beautiful part of when I look back at it and people talk about you know someone coming into this thing as though you came into it in a vacuum everybody that has any measure of success whatever it may be you had some tutelage and and oftentimes it's that background and your primary role models in your family. So
0: as as an athlete, so you're in Chicago, you had to have some pretty fierce rivals.
1: Man. <laughs> and you know, you know what's so funny about it, Bill, is that like you say, I'm from Chicago, and I gotta make sure that I say this. I'm from Chicago Heights <laughs> because I'm sitting here with one of my boys from Chicago Heights, and a lot of times people once they get some place and they say, Yeah, I'm from Chicago, and knowing we're from outside of Chicago. So for me, it was funny. People like Mark Aguirre, Isaiah Thomas in 1978, we're all Allstate together. So they're reading about me in the newspaper and I'm in the far south suburbs. I'm probably 30, 40 minutes outside of the city. So when we get down to Champaign for the All all-state dinner, they come up to me and they was like, man, we thought Craig Hodges was a white boy. <laughs> and I was like, why did y'all think that, man? I was like, they say we never, and it was crazy. Like that year, they never really showed me in the newspaper, but they would always put my name in there. So it became a thing where Craig Hodges got to be white because he's shooting the ball at a 63% clip from deep. You know what I'm saying? So it it was funny to see how different different players reacted to knowing that I was from the far south suburbs, man. So like, our you know, when I think back, our high school. Um, All-State team, Isaiah Thomas, Mark Aguire, J.J. Anderson, um, Glenn Rivers, uh, Terry Cummins. Man, I'm talking about probably at least 11 guys in the league, man. So it was one of those things that, you know, growing up, we read about each other. We get to, you know, get a game or two in in the summer against one another. And, and, And it's wild that I grew up basically in the city but i never played against isaiah thomas until i was a pro in in, in the pros
0: so let me ask you how does it how does a guy get from the midwest to long beach how in the world does that happen
1: hey we in one word text <laughs> man you know and i and i thank god for text and what He done for it. not only me but all the players that he touched man and I was at, I was a sophomore in high school when I first came in contact with Tex Winter. Um, I had a pretty good sophomore year. He came and watched the summer league game and told Steve Fisher he was interested in me going to Northwestern. And I'm like, man, I've been watching UCLA when all these championships is <laughs> coming up. <laughs> I'm watching them come out of games and shorts and t-shirts and, all the eaters around them and it's sunny and then I look outside and it's snowing and a blizzard I want to go out there <laughs> I don't know how I'm gonna get there but I want to go out there so my senior year fortunately um, Tex got the job right after final four and now it happened to be right before we had a, a city suburban all-star game and we played against the city guys and I, I led to the game in scoring, and right after the game, Tex came up to me. He's like, yeah, I just got the job at Long Beach State. I know you said you wanted to go to UCLA, but and I, and I ran down the whole list of Long Beach players, uh, the Traps, the Pondexters, the, you know, uh, Ed Radliff, Glenn McDonald. He's like, how you know all that? I'm like, man, I studied this. <laughs> I studied different teams. Like, your, your squad, your squad in San Francisco was so inspirational to me, man. Chubby Cox, them cats, um, Winfred Boyns. Winfred Boyns to me was one of the one of the players to me. When and looking at him, I was like, man, he has so many different skills. And to be able to watch you and then have like my boy was Wallace Bryant. So all of them wow. cats they came from Wallace Bryant, uh, Raymond McCoy who came out there. It's crazy. Me and Raymond where we were supposed to go to Texas A&M together because they had, you know, the old booster club thing from the high school that he went to, and we grew up together. So it's crazy how all of the different, he told me, yeah, man, when I went out there, man, all them guys, man, San Francisco is the place to be. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, those, those were all special guys, a great guy, especially for sure. Woodford, because Woodford, that guy, yeah. even now, um, I never met a guy that practiced as much as that guy he really played basketball all day long he was yeah he was, I
1: could, I, you can see it man and you know what's so crazy the other the other crazy like cross cross contacts and relations is like i go to long beach state and your boy james hardy yeah Long beach poly
0: james he's, he's from so, there
1: yeah so he and the main center and my team who played in the league with san antonio michael wiley he was a man at Long Beach State, and all he would talk about was trouble. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, and, yeah, man. So it, it, it's great to be able to have how how I tell I tell the people that I'm teaching in the basketball level how many places basketball can take you, man, and how many great friends and and memories it brings you.
0: Yeah, it is funny how everybody's kind of connected. So yeah, man. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's just funny that, uh, and of course, Tex, Tex loves shooters. He, oh, brother. he had to be dying to get you.
1: <laughs> man, and you know what's so crazy, man? It's like when I got to Long Beach, I could shoot. But if you saw me shoot the basketball in high school, Bill, it would be almost how the hell did the ball go in? Because I was shooting a straight frozen rope. <laughs> and me and Tex were going to the gym, and he was like, Craig, If you learn to get your, and and it was simple, how he put it, he said, if you learn to get your arc out at the basket, because your arc is starting, soon as it leaves your hand, when the ball leaves your hand, that's the most arc it has on it until it gets to the net. And he taught me how to delay my release for hours and hours and literally years (laughs) on just being able to perfect my shot to the point where you know, my senior year in college, man. He said, if I'd if I'd have had a three point line, my senior year in college, I'd average almost forty points a game. Yeah, I, I I
0: believe it. So you leave Long Beach,
1: mm-hmm. and you get drafted.
0: Yes, and you ended up getting drafted to the Clippers.
1: Yeah. And what, what were you th- what were you thinking? You know, at at that point, you just for me. I was and and the, you know, go to, to go back before that the year that I came out in 1982, that was the first year to pre-draft camp. So Tex being on the, um, the, one of the, uh, he was, he was actually my senior, he's the president of the uh, National, National Association of Basketball Coaches. So he was part of the uh, selection committee and I happened to be an alternate on that team on the, on the uh, selection. So he told me, I had graduated, so he told me if I went back to Chicago, like I was gonna do anyway, if somebody didn't show up, me being one of the first two alternates, instead of me having to fly in, I would be right there. So my senior year played against a great guard from um, USC by the name of Dwight Anderson, Lord rest his soul, he just passed recently. And Dwight was the number one guard in our selection. And he didn't didn't show up for the pre-draft camp. So I'm sitting by the phone, at nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, text calls me at 1130. And he says, how soon could I be at the Hyatt? And he just told me that and I hung up the phone. And the next thing he knows, I'm knocking on his door in the next 35 minutes. And he's like, did you get a helicopter here? I was like, no nah, man, I let everything know I'm coming through. <laughs> so got there to the pre-draft camp and I missed the first session. And so I got there for the night session, which was scrimmage. So all my job was to bring the ball down, run screen and roll or pass and come off a single double. So I had like two or three shots, made all three of those first half, made all three of my next shots. And then the next session in the morning is going through drill work and shooting off the catch and all of that. And I didn't miss a shot, Bill, literally from Friday night until Sunday morning. And my name isn't on any of the roster sheets. so. And you know, you walk into that situation as a as a, a student of the game, and I'm seeing Jerry West, Red Auerbach, all these people, Elgin Baylor, all these people I didn't thought about being around, and I'm actually seeing them. I'm like, Hyde, you got to tie your shoes up real tight for this one, <laughs> for this one." i you know going to the Clippers, not knowing anything about it, but when I got there, I found out real quickly. You think about that team we had with the Clippers, Bill. That team had some great, even a couple Hall of Famers, man. So if we just couldn't get over that hump of uh, being a great organization, man. You know, we got some checks when I was with the Clippers that weren't even signed.
0: <laughs> well, later on, we found out the um, owner was a little bit shaky and what kind of business that he was in. So uh, and looking back at it, it's not surprising.
2: Yeah, I, I, I should, we should ask you that, Craig. What was it like playing for Donald's Sterling?
1: You know, and that's the one thing that when I first got to the Clippers, Bill Walton told me, he's like, check this out, young man, You're, you're always with the players, players and management, remember that, players and management, so for me as a young player, I was all about just proving that I was worthy to be here, and so my interactions with Donald Sterling was basically, nice to meet you, how you doing at events or whatever, but it was always a distance between us, but through the way our organization was run and through some of the stuff I read, because I love to study, so some of the stuff I read about, you know, the way he dealt with housing and all that gave me a different eyesight on him, but I never, I never looked at it from a standpoint of him being the racist that he turned out to be. And what
2: was your reaction? I mean, I'm sure it's kind of obvious, but what was your reaction once you did see all of that stuff, when all that stuff came out and he was forced out of the league?
1: well you know it's, it's cool to be forced out of the league and given a 2 billion golden parachute to do it i feel like you know some <laughs> of that some of that is man it, it should it should have been left on the table we shouldn't be able to have been that way for all those years and and then my question becomes how many of the owners around you knew your position on things and that you were able to continue that position and and stay in your position of ownership and and one of the things you know he was not I'm not going to say notorious for, but business minded for was to always be the lowest under the salary cap to be able to make some more bread. You know what I mean? So he was, it was always that I, that in the way he did Elgin Baylor was kind of, you know, rugged, you know, Elgin, Elgin should have had a lot more influence than he had, you know? So it's one of those things that you see it for what it is and you understand it for what it is, especially from the standpoint of these are billionaires, man. And it's more, more so, these are just um, trinkets. It's not really what they've done to create their real nest egg. And it this is something like, you know, something like a trophy on their shelf, on their mantle or something, you know?
0: So you, you leave the Clippers and you go to Milwaukee.
1: Night and day difference, Bill. You know, and the, and the biggest thing that I saw from day one was an organization that was geared towards winning and one of the things that always stopped us i felt like you know that team that we had in milwaukee during that period of time was uh well equipped enough to have won a championship but whenever we were going to boston nelly wouldn't coach (laughs) and it would be like hold up man we i know this is your boy red and you orange and everything but man we need you right now because you know, Nelly, Nelly is a, a wizard in coming up with trick, trick bags, something out of the norm that nobody expects at this moment. You wouldn't do it at any other point in the season, but at this moment, he pulls it out. And whether it be a defensive scheme that we're running against Isaiah or whether it be a three-point scheme that we're going to do out of a dribble-weave action that we haven't done since training camp, he was great at doing that. And it was points and times when we needed that, against the Celtics and we just didn't get it because one of the great things that we had was Paul Pressy and Paul Pressy always did a great job on Larry Bird, And, you know, except the one time he held Larry Bird to 15 points. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Birdie, Birdie caught him coming out the locker room. He said, I'll see you next game, young brother. <laughs> he gave him 40, you know, so it's, It's a, you know, that's the part of the game that, like you say, the memories are so great, man. But to have went to Milwaukee at a time when it was an up and coming franchise. And for me, it was only 90 minutes from Chicago. So it was a chance for my family to be able to drive up, to be able to, I could drive down after games on Sunday and have Sunday dinner at my grandma's house. So it was a, it was a great situation, man.
0: So then after you leave there uh, where you're very happy, you end up in uh, Phoenix
1: yes and and once again, like we talk about those ties and relations, uh Jerry Colangelo grew up in Chicago Heights. He grew up with my aunt, so wow I did not know that. so when I went there, I knew Jerry. I knew Jerry from the time I was a little boy the my the high school gym the the junior high gym that I played in is Jerry Colangelo gym, so I knew Jerry, and and what it it wound up being, Bill, was they traded me for Jay Humphreys because it was a lot of crazy stuff that went on in Phoenix at that time, scandal-wise, and they kind of got kind of cleaned house. So that day that we all came in, it was myself coming from Milwaukee, Kevin Johnson coming from Cleveland, Mark West coming from Cleveland, Tyrone Corbin coming from Cleveland, and we all came in at the same time. I'm leading the league in three-point shooting at the time, Soon as I get off the plane, I'm on the injury reserve list, Bill, and I'm like, "How did I get hurt? I got—I must have got hurt in baggage claim." <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, it's only you know, and they're not going to the playoffs, so it's only like 15 games left, and we—and I get in, you know, you have to sit out five, so I'm in there for the last 10 games, and I'm just—I'm just holding on to my three-point title, right? Because I'm gonna walk away this season with something. And Kevin Johnson is constantly come on, high shoot a three. I'm like, until somebody passes me, I'm not shooting them. So I would catch them in rhythm, Bill. You know, I catch a rhythm and let it go. I catch a rhythm behind the three and take a dribble inside the line and KJ would be hot with me. I was like, Kevin, just like you're going to get your assist title one day. I'm taking this one home this summer, man. (laughs) So, and it was crazy. So I got a chance to um, win a three point title that year. And then as soon as we came back, the next year, Jerry calls me in the office, it's probably like November, early December, I can't really put right where it was, and he says, yeah, Craig, um, I got a deal you might want to think about, um, but we would love to, you know, Cotton loves you and he would love to keep you as an insurance policy for the playoff, but I think right now you could go here and play right away. I was like, "What's up, Jerry?" He's like, uh, "What'd you think about going home and playing in Chicago?" I was like, "Jerry, come on, man, <laughs> give me a, let me go, bro." He's like, "Yeah, man, I already made the deal for you. Good luck, and tell the family I said hi." So it was a cool situation, man.
0: So you had to be on cloud nine. What were you, what were you thinking going back home?
1: It was it was coming back home, but also but also knowing um, what I was coming home to. And to, it was crazy, Bill. This is so wild. We're playing Chicago in the playoffs. And I'm in Milwaukee. And MJ is a rookie, I think he's a rookie or second-year player or whatever. So we happen to be coming back to half court through the layup line. And we happen to meet at half court. And we shake and hug. And I tell him, if we ever get to if we ever get together, we're gonna win championships. And we laugh, laugh it off and go walk away. Right. Not knowing. Two and a half years later, we're going to be there. You know what I mean? So knowing that I was coming home, people had told me MJ been telling him he needs help and all of this. So I get back to Chicago and it's like, man, first thing Jerry Krause asked me, do you think you're going to be able to handle being from here and your family and friends and all of that? And like I told him, I'm like, Jerry, I'm six years in the league now. I I am. I'm me and, I think at that time, me and you had more playoff experience than anybody on the squad. So I'm like, man, I've been, I'm here to win. I ain't, I'm ain't i not here for no, oh, look, I'm home. Hey, y'all, come on to the game. I got 25 tickets. No, that ain't what it's about. You know, my family, they know that they they ain't got no problem buying tickets, man, and and my friends understand my family. So it's about them wanting to see us bring a championship in, man. And And I just think about, you know, coming in to the crew, you know, Charles Davis, Brad, yourself, John, you know, I think about the first game, man, think about it, man, I had four threes the first game, i never forget, that's one of the memorable moments in my career, coming in the first game, I had four threes, and John Paxson had four assists, you know what I'm saying, and, and that was the cool part about it, of how welcoming everybody was of me coming, and it wasn't any it wasn't anything of me trying to get used to anything. It was just, let's go play ball. And we had a good crew that, you know, and, and I think Brad Sellers was one of the coolest teammates I've ever had, man. Because he was always, he was always upbeat about the team. And that that's the part that, you know, you have certain memories and certain people that pop up. And I tell people, the black shoes is Brad Sellers.
0: Yeah, and also you got you got your uh, coach back.
1: Man, you know, and, that, and and you know it's so funny when I get back, I'm like, man, thanks, Tex, for bringing me in. He's like, don't thank me. I was like, what you mean? He's like, thank Johnny Bach. I was like, what? He's like, yeah, because Johnny Bach says as long as Craig Hodges is on somebody else's team stretching the defense, it's going to be hard for us <laughs> to win. <laughs> so I went over to Johnny. He's like, you know Johnny and his Lord rest his soul also, man, that that it's crazy the 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 characters we had you know what I mean where it was like if you you know that's something we should think about Bill just the characters of how he was real military and this is his navy thing and then he had his little cadet's horse and Scotty who who bought him you know what I'm saying it was it was it was a cool cast and I tell people that's where I look at Bill and being so adept as a head coach was his ability to understand and utilize the experience and information of the coaches that he had on his staff, man. And they, you know, you think about it, Bill, they ran this, they ran it. And <laughs> you know, yeah. they ran it.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I, I just always felt it was a special time that, you know, we had a GM who was motivated. We had a, uh, you know, I, I loved Al um, uh, I loved our coaching staff. I thought we learned. Oh learn. my goodness! And you know what's so
1: crazy, Bill? I went. I went the whole time I was in the league. They were trying to get me to lift weights. You feel me? And yeah. I was not. I was like, okay, I'll be in there, and i duck and be up. Okay, I'm here. I'm up. You know. And it wasn't until Al and the the fun that he brought to it. You know what I'm saying? It was a yeah. certain fun that you enjoyed going in and go knock it out.
0: Yeah, yeah. He was, he, was, he was a special, special guy. Now, let me ask you this. So, uh, you know, obviously we won a lot of games. Uh, we had a really talented team. We had a great second group of starters, a great team. So, and I was on the bus. So, you were going to see George Bush, our president. Right. So, Craig gets on the bus. <laughs> <laughs> that uh oh, uh so what 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 were you thinking then
1: now, you know it's so crazy, Bill, so once again, we had to go back on a history tip uh i was I was like I said, I was blessed to have a mom who was and family who was socially and consciously and politically active in the community, so I was taught from the time I could write, we wrote letters to the senator, the mayor, we wrote letters to everybody, so the night before we went to the White House, it hit me, I was playing ping pong actually and it hit me. Man, I haven't written, a, I gotta write a letter for this. Now we go back to June when we got ready to win the championship. I knew he was getting ready to win when we went to LA Bill. So it was a sister, so when I was at Long Beach studying our history, I was, we were taught that whenever you go to an event like we were getting ready to go to, you're supposed to wear your garment. So when we got to LA, unbeknownst to everybody on the team it was a sister by the name of Neva Neva she came to the room measured me up told me I have it ready before y'all leave so right after the game when we won she met me in the lobby had my dashiki ready to go because I thought we were going to go right after we won and I wanted to be able to go in a manner that was respectful but also respectful to the culture and that you know the letter was just part and parcel of my ability to say something on behalf of those who wouldn't get a chance to come to the white house and meet the president. And that was, do so you know, that day, man, we had a great time. How cool it was. You know what I mean? It was, it was a cool event. And I tell people yeah. like when I hear players, when I hear players and teams say they're going to boycott it, I get that. I get who's ever sitting in the seat, but I don't get the, I don't get the whole of that. That house belongs to us, man. You know, and that, if you get a chance to go, you should get a chance to go because some of your people are not gonna get a chance to ever get a chance to stuff put in it. So, yeah. for me, chance to get to go and express what your feelings are. That if you got a beef with what's happening, go and let them know what your beef is, as opposed to just saying, "I ah, he ain't nothing, or he ain't nothing." It's not about, to me, personally, it's not about the seat. It's about the policies that come out of the totality of it, and it, and that that hasn't really changed regardless to who has been in the seat.
0: Let me let me ask you so. I mean, obviously, I know the answer to the question, but after you leave Chicago and you're looking for your next job, what
1: are you thinking? I'm thinking I'm 10 years in the league, I'm an unrestricted free agent, the best shooter on the planet. Man, we and and see, you know, like with that, I feel like okay, if. Whoever wins the championship, for instance, right now, whoever's the top three-point shooter on the Lakers is the top shooter because y'all won. You're the top three-point shooter on the champion. So I felt like my statistics and, and the things that I had won individually and, com- and compiled with what we did team-wise should have gave me an opportunity to get a contract. And not only that, but I'm saying, you know, every team in the league steals from other teams, real. So why wouldn't you be able to bring – why wouldn't a team – bringing Craig Hodges just to know what is the, the conscious thought on the other, in the other locker room when we're getting ready to go face the Bulls. What, what is a talk talk? Like, what is a walkthrough? Like, what is, what is Phil thinking at, at this time when somebody takes away the corner series or takes away the top of the circle pass, you know, and those type of things that, and, and then I knew the writing was on the wall when training camp started that season. And, That's why when Colin Kaepernick was going through his thing, I was like, ah, I hope you're in there before training camp starts, because once training camp starts, it's out of sight, out of mind, unless you have a great mouthpiece. And for me, I couldn't get an agent to speak for me at that time. You know, Bob uh, Wolf had stopped doing what he was doing um, during that time, you know, and, and for me, it was just, and Charlie Grantham with the union told me I needed to find an agent that a team owed a favor so they'll know that I'm not a bad guy and I'm like Charlie what did I do was wrong man I was I was player rep for all four teams I played for I was player rep as a rookie which is un you don't do that and so the the character that I have amongst my players and amongst my colleagues I ain't did nothing wrong man I've never been fined I've never been you know I none of that so what is what what did I do that was wrong other than possibly, and I just say possibly because nobody's ever told me, that maybe when I went to the White House, that bothered somebody, but that has nothing to do with me shooting the basketball or or playing within the team defense of things when people say, oh, you can't play defense. Okay. Well, there's a lot of people who can't play team D de- who can't play because they can't play team defense. I wasn't one of those. I knew my assignments. I knew where I had to be. I knew who who to go down and double on and who not to, you know, so all of those type of things are just nuances to be able to say and complete that that stereo vibe of, uh, well, he was too old to play, he didn't have anything left in his tank, whatever. We know, you know, you can talk to Tim Hardaway. The summers after that, I was almost 35 a game in the summer league. So it, it, was, it was just it was just a matter of, at that time, I talked to Dr. Harry Edwards the other day, and he was saying one of the things that caught you and make mood Abdul-Raup up, was that you didn't have a movement that was going on during that period of time. So Ali was caught up into the movement. John Carlos and and Tommy Smith, Jim Brown, it was a movement that was indicative of them being able to stand up and stand on that platform where when we came through, it wasn't really anything happening. I look at myself and Colin Kaepernick, Colin was able to use the sports media, use uh, social media as a platform that instantaneously have a base. And I think that's part of what's happening worldwide, man, is that people are seeing and feeling the oppression of different people and that they're speaking on it. And that the time that we were coming through, it wasn't really anything going on. You know, we had Rodney King happen and that was really the first visible when people were able to see what was going on from a camera in and from a social quasi social media. in. but it was more mainstream media and it wasn't any collective true collective response we might have burned up some stuff but we didn't we weren't on a collective base with it and nor did other people really buy into that you know that's that's the biggest part of it man is that now it's a worldwide movement and the players of today everybody is standing on the platform of, of righteous actions and what they want to see within the world community and not just it's great for america but it's bad for the rest of the world uh we got to get over that
0: I agree, I agree. So, after you leave the Bulls, um, and you couldn't get a job in the NBA, right. uh, you, you you went overseas, right? Now, and I, that was
1: that was one of the things where I I talked to um, uh, Van Arsdale with Phoenix, and he asked me, "Was I still active?" He's like, "Go overseas and prove that you can still play." So <laughs> I averaged about thirty. I was over there and and when I got back here no one would still even bring me in for a look see you know how it is man they bring people in all the time to see what you're capable of doing and none of that happening but one of the things I knew the writing was on the wall when Tex Winter told me he had called every team in the league on my behalf and left messages on my behalf and nobody returned the call he told me Craig it's time for you to start teaching the game
0: after your coaching career ended I think it ended in Sweden is that right well my your your playing
1: career no, it ended in um Italy, actually. And, you know, some of the stuff on that stuff that I only played in Italy. That was the only place that I played overseas. Um, and came back and, and jumped into coaching. I coached at Chicago State for a year and a half.
0: Now uh, how how did that happen? Because that's 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 a tough job.
1: Yeah, my cousin my cousin played there. And the the head coach at that time, Rick Pryor, uh his, I played for his father in summer league. And Rick and I were friends, and he told me he had – and it was crazy how it happened. He was coaching knowing he was being fired at the time. So it wasn't like I was backstabbing him or anything. And at the time I came to the game, the athletic director came over to me and offered me the job. And, you know, I, it was one of them things for me. It was almost my sons were getting older. I was like, man, this would be a great practice site (laughs) for me teaching my sons the game as well as giving these young brothers information. So for me, it was almost more of a camp situation because I knew it was going to be hard for us to win. Uh, But at the same time, you know, uh, it was during that period when uh, Kevin Garnett came to Chicago. And I tried to get Kevin and Ronnie Fields to Jake because both of them were talking about going pro. I'm like, man, if y'all commit to Chicago State and then go pro if you want to, but just commit here. How much media coverage you would bring to Chicago State, even if you left here, we would get players to come because they think you coming, and that is a quality program. But uh, you know, it was a it was an experience, man. It also taught me that in some situations, basketball is secondary to the overall scheme of things, and so I found out real quickly that you know, we have to go to the University of Missouri, get a $60,000 payday, but when I bring it back to the university, we might get 10,000 of it. And that was a tough road for me when I'm like, how does this go to the general scholarship fund when I got to get my players up to go down there and get this butt whooping? <laughs> you know, but we taking one for the squad, the university as a whole. So it was it was a crazy situation, man, but it was, it was a learning experience. And I love it because to this day, the players that I coach than my boy, you know what I'm saying. I see them right. in the summer. I see them in the summers in Chicago because most of them, like they say, they only let me. I recruited two players from out of state. Bill, I recruited the number one scorer from the CIF his senior year, averaged thirty points a game, six seven. Jamal Johnson, he sent me a letter saying I want to come to Chicago State, and I was like, Where did you average thirty a game? <laughs> yeah, come on. So I brought him with no thought and. The university got after me because I had to. You get tuition waivers, and for an out-of-state student, it was two tuition waivers. So that's two scholarships actually. So I was in hot water for bringing in two college, two high school players who were prepared to play on our level at D1, and they were going to bring a seven-footer in a year later. So I'm like, I got to bring them, but I wasn't. That wasn't to be.
2: I was going to ask you as a coach, you know, who did you learn the most from Tex Winter, Phil Jackson, Bill Cartwright?
1: You know, you know, what's so so cool, man, is that, like I said, I had great fundamental coaching all the way through. So it seemed like every level that I went to, the coaches expounded on what I had. And they were able to, it was almost like those uh, little Russian dial cups that you cup 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 inside a cup, inside a cup, inside a cup, inside a cup, inside a cup until you get that outward one that is the, the main, you know. So I look at it like that, that, you know, Phil Jack, when I look at Doug Collins, Doug was a great coach. I think one of the biggest problems Doug had, you know, with our squad was that he got too emotional, you know, that it was almost as if he was playing sometimes and that he wasn't able to be on balance. And sometimes that led to him having certain outbursts or a certain – Insinuation that a player may have felt that Doug was feeling a certain kind of way, so that player couldn't be focused where he needed to be because he was worried about Doug, or, or vice versa. You know, so it's one of those things that I've had great coaching, man. And, and when I think about how, once again, how it all ties into that Russian dial, I thought I had some. I thought I had to bomb when I came out of Long Beach. I didn't have four years under Tex Winter, and I'm talking about where then the Bulls come back. And then I get Tex on the cap thinking that was it and then get a chance to go be on the staff with Tex and Phil in L.A., which is another whole another dynamic of seeing what it's like to be in a Phil Jackson and Tex winner and Frank Hamlin and Johnny Bach and Jim Clemens to see what it is to be like in a coach's meeting with them. And understand now, oh, this is what they were doing while we were out there working out. This is the stuff that they were putting together for practice and how to put together practice. So to me, it's been a it's been a great. I tell people all the time, man, as far as basketball, man, it's been it's been one of those things that you dream about, but the stuff that you dream about was only scratching the surface of what you actually get to experience. Yeah. I was
2: gonna ask you, what was one specific thing that you learned that you didn't it didn't Um, register you as a player like oh this is why they did this
1: oh just the just how one like just something like bill would would understand like how they split up the schedule for who was going to scout which team for 82 game season and how meticulous bill was about what he wanted right so and that and that goes to i'm shooting coach for the lakers and they send me on a scouting trip, <laughs> okay? Wrong thing to do, because I don't want to go scouting to Phoenix and watch Steve Nash put on the show. And I'm sitting there, not as a scout, but as watching Steve Nash put on the show, right? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sitting next to a young brother that's the scout for the Cleveland Cavaliers. And I told him, yo, man, I don't know what's happening with this, he was like, oh man, I got you, I'll give you what I got. So eventually I piggyback off of what he had. But Bill, the notes that I wrote down, when I gave him the fill, he started laughing. He started laughing because I told him it had, it had Steve Nash dribbling all over the court. And he was like, what is this? I'm like, that's what he did on that play field. He dribbled over here. He dribbled over there. And then he dribbled and got a layup. He's like, did you catch a call? I was like, no, that's Steve Nash. <laughs> <I> was <laughs> him from the he was improvising the, on the fly, man. So needless to say, I didn't have to scout anymore.
2: <laughs> I was just gonna ask another question, just in general, Craig, with the way your career worked out, you had so many positives, would you do anything differently?
1: Not at all, man, not at all. It's been too many, even, I was talking to my baby boy about challenges and often challenges when you're in them. And at, at a younger age, you look at it as punishment. You know, when your parents are tell you, do this or do that, and you look at it as punishment, but it's actually teaching your work ethic. You know, and then when you go through something in life, a financial crisis or something, you'd be like, God, why me? But you weren't saying, why me when you had, when you was rolling? You know what I mean? So it's certain things that you learn that you wouldn't, you know, we, I was talking to a sister yesterday and she was like, you know, when I was 25, the stuff I thought about was so crazy compared to now what I think about and as far as what's meaningful. Some of these challenges and, and what we think are doldrums are actually times of you know, invaluable strength being learned.
0: Hey, hey, let me ask you, with, with all the um, current NBA, all of everybody's online, what do, you, what do you think about all the players or a lot of the players are really active on, on the net and voicing their opinion. What do you what do you think about that?
1: I think, you know, and, and that's the, that it's generational Bill, you know, it's like um, when we was coming through in the late 60s, early 70s, we had our froze and we was rolling with the, you know, with the program. And I think, you know, now it's so many, it's so many people that have wrapped up into this spirit, man, that, that's happening that it's hard not to make a comment. And so many of the guys have families who are in these situations and in these positions where it could happen to them. And they're, they're seeing that, you know, and that's, that's the biggest part, man, is that they've been able to take it and move it to a different level. And now we're seeing it. They have a platform that we didn't have. Yeah. I, I, I think it's awesome that uh, people are participating. People are, um, are speaking up. Yeah. You're going to have to have me back on too, man.
2: Yeah. we love that. Yeah, that would be awesome. Steve, you had a question? I, I just had a question. You know, you mentioned Colin Kaepernick or Eric Reed and these people and Harry Edwards. What kind of activity do you have now? Have, have you had a chance to speak to Colin Kaepernick? And if not, what would you tell him?
1: I haven't had a chance to talk to him, but I know uh, I've, met, I've left messages for his people and told him, you know, kudos for what he's doing. Uh, I appreciate his courage. I appreciate the sense that he's, con- take, he's continued to take. The Know Your Rights campaign is awesome. So it's one of those things that we all part of a fabric, man. And, it, and they, I feel like right now, we, 1991, I was able to keep it alive to a degree. Like Mood kept it alive. And when I've had a chance to talk to Dr. John Carlos and Harry Edwards, they told us in 68 they knew it wasn't going to be accomplished then, but they was putting seeds out. And that when he saw me go to the White House, that I was one of the seeds. So I look at it like that, man, that you to build and build these coalition of right-thinking people and see how far we can go. And and like with the NBA, I feel like now it's about power sharing. It's about taking away that label of ownership and let's call it CEO. So won't nobody feel like it's plantation politics anymore and share ownership and, and let us be able to do what we can. So I look at the NBA, I say, hey, why can't some black banks within urban communities handle your payroll? handle your pensions, you know, and that kind of thing. So that now we can truly see where you put your money, where your mouth is.
2: It seems that way. And what did you think of during the bubble, you know, the Black Lives Matter, the jerseys? Did you think that was enough?
1: I didn't think they should have went down there myself. I I felt like at that point in time, we had taken a jackhammer to um, the system of white supremacy. And I think that, you know, we kind of let our foot off the pedal a little bit, but Um, we still in the game, you know, we're still in the game. But when I look at what I saw from a basketball uh, perspective, I saw a video game and I saw that it being a video game to promote the video game because they no one knows what it's going to look like or when we're going to have fans again. So I feel like they're promoting that side of things along with gambling. So one of the biggest things that I heard from brothers who were watching games this year, in the bubble was how much money they were gambling, and I think those are the only two venues right now that are really reasonable for the NBA to really think about in this, in terms of a new paradigm and where they're at, or not so much where the new is because they don't nobody knows this thing is going to open up, man, and when people are going to feel comfortable in a 20,000 seat arena sitting next to somebody who just happened to have their beer go down the wrong pipe and then they start coughing and everybody's going to bail out, you know what I'm saying? So. It's that it's, when is the psyche of uh, America and around the world is going to be able to gather again in congregations like that? Nobody knows. So I feel like <clears throat> the league realizes that you put out something that looks closer to the video game, as opposed to the enticement of having a family and them, them come to a game. We have to make it as close to video game reality. But well, Craig, thank you so much Peace, for thank being you, on. Frank. It was really I nice love meeting you. Man. You know, one love, man. Tell the family I say peace and blessings.